So I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret this morning. Something that I'm sure uh, probably most of you don't know. Um, I like sneakers. So I know, shocking. I know. It's all right. Hold it in. I uh, want to tell you about uh, my favorite pair of sneakers um, that I have. Thank you, thank you. Uh, these are uh, Jordan 1 High Tokyo Biohacks. That's what they're called. I have the uh, original box. In fact, uh, this last week, um, I was actually uh, cleaning them before I even knew that I was going to use them as an illustration. Actually cleaned them all up. I, I, I had this uh, uh, can of, it's called Crep. Uh, not crap, crep, and it is a nanotechnology to protect your shoes to keep them clean. I bought these used from another sneakerhead who had kept them very clean himself, and uh, I am also trying to keep them very clean as well, uh, because one day I hope to resell them uh, after I'm done enjoying them. Now, uh, I care very much about the shoelaces. I got to keep them shoelaces crisp and clean. They got to be perfect. I don't wear these shoes if it's going to be raining. Even though I've protected them, I still am not going to do I'm very conscientious about where I step. You ever have shoes like that? It's terrible, I know. But like you're walking down the road and like you see something, you don't step in it, you step around it, you know what I'm saying? So uh, very much paying attention uh, to all of those things. Uh, I even have a place where I keep those shoes. You see that? All right. Up third shelf. They stay right there until I'm ready to wear them again. I even have the original box. Now, these are my work boots. These have not been cleaned in well over a decade, probably going on close to 15 years, to be honest. Uh, these, I don't uh, have the original box. In fact, quite honestly, I don't even think that I got a box when I first bought them. Uh, the shoelaces are really, really gnarly and ratty. Uh, they're frayed on the ends. Uh, I am definitely not afraid to wear these in the rain. Uh, I don't pay attention to where I step when I'm wearing these. In fact, sometimes the gnarlier, the better. Uh, these are not something that uh, I care a whole lot about. In fact, when I'm done uh, using them, I uh, also have a special place for them. Uh, they go on the ground in the garage. Uh, that's literally, uh, I had to kind of remind myself where they were, and that was the picture that I took when I found them. Um, it's one thing when we're talking about shoes, how they're treated. It's a whole nother thing uh, when we're talking about people. And this past week, as I was uh, studying for our text this morning, God began to reveal some things uh, deep within my heart that I thought I was pretty good at. And I think he may wish to do the same to you as well. Way too often, I can find that I'm tempted to treat people the way that I treat some of my shoes. Our text today is in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James has finally finished the kind of beginning of his letter. And for the first time, he's starting to actually hold on to a theme for more than just a verse or two. And so these 13 verses carry a theme throughout. 
verse one. James says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you you stand there or, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is, not the, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, I'll be honest, I, I, uh, I just kind of thought this was something I was pretty good at. A part of that is how I grew up. Um, I didn't grow up. Uh, wealthy. Uh, we weren't under the poverty line, but uh, I don't think we were really a, uh, a middle-class family until probably I was in high school. Uh, we had government subsidy for cheese and milk, and I remember the big tubs of peanut butter, and grew up in Flint. Uh, had a lot of friends who would have been quote-unquote poor, um, my family, uh, because of my uh, parents' uh, love for uh, kids that didn't have uh, families, uh, often uh, fostered, and, and many of my brothers and sisters that were adopted came from uh, pretty tough spots, and, 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 and even uh, many of them, because of their special needs, uh, would have been viewed by the world as being uh, less valuable in the world's eyes. So growing up with that, like, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm good about not being, you know, favoritist to people. Like, I'm going to treat everybody the same. Uh, that's at least what I kind of thought. In fact, uh, Jesus kind of radically transformed my life when I was in high school. I got really serious and desirous, like passionately wanting to follow him and know his word. And I know that you're not supposed to, like, have favorites based on what somebody has or doesn't have. And so I thought I was, like, really good at it. And then I had to actually study this passage this week and actually allow God to kind of speak and look into my own heart. And I realized that um, I'm way better than had I never decided to follow Jesus, but I don't think if I'm really, really honest with some of the things that I think I even try to hide from myself that this isn't a struggle for me. Um, and my guess is it may be for you as well. Uh, James 
really kind of has one theme that runs through this whole 13 verses. We see it most specifically in the first four verses of James chapter 2, where James basically wants us all to know that love has no favorites, okay? Uh, Now, what James is going to do in verses 5 and 7 and verses 8 through 13 is really kind of support this main idea that love has no favorites. Uh, In fact, he starts off by talking about this idea of favoritism. Uh, It's really kind of the object of James's concern for the church there. And if God allowed it to be placed in his word, then uh, God must also think that it could be an issue, not just for the churches that James is writing to, but to us in our church today as well. Uh, Dr. David Nystrom says this, uh, talking about this, uh, this word favoritism. He says, the root of this idea is tied to a Hebrew term which means lifting up the face. This idea of kind of grabbing someone's face, lifting it up to look and see what they're like, and then if they're worthy, beautiful, powerful, rich, you continue to elevate, and if they're not, then you discard it. This idea of lifting of the face. The phrase phrase has its origin in the Old Testament, has overtones of the unjust favoritism granted to the powerful at the expense of others, which, of course, goes completely against God's character. Now, James gives us an illustration under the guise of a question here in uh, verse 2, right? He starts off and says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Uh, Have you ever heard, uh, it's a a meme apparently, Um, tell me you're rich without telling me, okay? (laughs) Uh, Tell me you're rich without telling me. When you use the word summer as a verb, as in we always summer in Nantucket. Uh, When your house has twice as many bathrooms as it does bedrooms. When your friend asks how you clean your beautiful thick shag rugs and you say, I'm not sure, I've never watched my housekeeper do it. Tell me you're rich without telling me. This is exactly what James does here. He says, a man walks in wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. You notice he doesn't actually say the man is rich. Tell me you're rich without telling me. Uh, Now, this is a little bit different for us because uh, we live in an era where we are much more egalitarian in how we kind of interact with one another and our expectations. But back in first century Rome, this was not the case. Uh, About one-tenth of one percent of the population had somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the kingdom's wealth, Uh, about 10% actually held the vast majority of the wealth, and they were considered the wealthy, and then 90% lived basically in poverty. They were poor. There was really no middle class at all. So only one out of every 10 would have actually had money, and that meant that uh, they were the only ones that could afford for someone else to make their clothes. All the rest of us, we would have just had some homemade clothes, okay? Uh, Whatever your parents would have made for you, whatever you could cobble, that's what you would wear. So when James says that a man walks in wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, what he's saying is this this dude's rich. He's saying he's rich without telling us that he's actually rich. Uh, Listen to this quote uh, by Dr. Nystrom. Uh, He says, the powerful and wealthy in the first century were accustomed to special treatment. 
James's question in verse 4 implies that the known and accepted norm within the Christian community was to treat everyone equally. This was shockingly different than the culture with which they were living. Was to treat everyone equally. Such an ethic stands in stark contrast with the surrounding culture. So the, culture, uh, the cultural standard of the time was if you were rich, if you were powerful, you were absolutely treated differently. Not only were you treated differently, but it was absolutely expected that you would be. But of course, this is not how God has intended it. Um, it still happens today. Uh, I can remember, uh, this is probably like, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. Uh, Brendan and I were back in Chicago uh, Chicago is one of my favorite cities, and uh, we were just back to, to visit. And I remember we were walking downtown on Michigan Avenue, okay, Miracle Mile. Uh, any of you guys ever been to Garrett's Popcorn? There? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's always a line uh, at Garrett's, and uh, I don't, we weren't even in line. Uh, we were just walking by. But we see uh, this dude pull up in a Lambo, legit. Okay, uh, middle-aged white guy, probably in his like mid-50s, uh, dude was stylish, like you could tell he spent most of his time probably working out, uh, tall and handsome, homeboy on Michigan Avenue, pulled up and just parked his car on the road, jumped out, ran up to Garrett's, okay, where there was a line, and simply grabbed a couple of bags of popcorn and threw what I'm assuming was like a hundred or something on the table and then just ran back to his car. Okay, that was me. I'm sorry. Like, I didn't know how to tell you guys. No, we were shocked. Like, like holy cow. First of all, I like, admittedly, I was like, a Lambo, Lamborghini, right? Like, I grew up with a poster of a Lamborghini on my, like, bedroom. While, like, I was like, whoa. And then you just, but then you're like, Ugh. I mean, that's kind of icky. At this time in the first century, it was absolutely expected that you would treat the rich, the powerful differently than everybody else, but not within the Christian community. The Christian community was very, uh, I was going to say cross-cultural. I don't want to say anti-cultural. They just had a different culture because they held to an idea of equality, an idea of being egalitarian and how we treat one another, that no one gets better treatment than someone else. And yet, what James is saying is that it's very possible that the culture leaks into the church. Um, I think often uh, we think that it's not really the case today because we live in kind of such an egalitarian, like, no, you can, like, you know, work hard. Like, even if you're not born with much, like, if you work hard, you can kind of, like, you know, make good choices, work hard in school. You can probably wind up getting an education. And, and, and we know that that's, like, not totally true for everybody, right? A lot of it kind of depends, if we're being honest, of kind of what zip code we grew up in. But I still think probably in America, it, our country is not perfect, but you probably get the best shot at it. You get outside, though, of America, and it's very, very different. I was watching um, this documentary. Uh, it's called Long Way Up. Uh, if you're a motorcycle person, uh, you probably know this. It's actually the third installment. Uh, Ewan McGregor of Star Wars fame and probably a lot of other movie fame uh, and his buddy Charlie Borman, they do these epic, like, 
takes them like two, sometimes three months motorcycle trips that they document. So the first one was long way around, literally rode a motor, uh, motorcycle around the world, okay? And then they did long way down, starting in England, and then went all the way down to the southern tip of Africa. And this last installment is called Long Way Up. And they're starting in South America, the very tip of Chile, and coming all the way up to L.A. And I was uh, just watching uh, this the other night, and one of these particular episodes, uh, they're going through uh, Peru. And uh, they get to Peru, and they always try to do different interesting kind of cultural things as they're, as they're riding. Uh, one of the things that they did is they actually stopped um, at a refugee camp, um, and uh, in Venezuela, uh, when they were shooting this, there was uh, really, really uh, difficult, and it's still a really, really a hard place to live. Um, the value of the currency had plummeted. No matter how much money you had, it was basically worth uh, zero. Um, there was lots and lots of violence. It was a very unsafe place uh, to live for many, many people. And so a number of Venezuelans had to flee their country. Uh, some uh, were um, being forced out and uh, heading south. Uh, where they had family members in uh, places like Ecuador or Chile uh, or Peru. And this was a refugee camp. And uh, as part of their, their time, uh, they were introduced to some of the kids that were living there. And they did this like little dance thing that the kids were doing for them. And it was cute. And they were laughing. And, and, and then they interacted um, with Maria and Abraham. Maria is 16 years old. Abraham is 14. And the reason that it kind of stuck out to me when I was first watching it is I've got a 16-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old son. And uh, Abraham actually reminded me a little bit of my 14-year-old son, just kind of looked similar. And they started to share a little bit about the story of what had happened and that they had to flee. Uh, and their mom wasn't able to leave, but she uh, sent them out trying to get them uh, to Ecuador where they have some family members that would, extended family that would be able to, to care for them. But because they didn't have paperwork, they had gotten into Peru, but they had gotten stuck there and they had been there for 47 days. And, they began to hear a little bit more of the story, and, and uh, uh, Ewan asked a, just a very sincere question. He just said, hey, do, you, how, how, do you know how your, how your folks are doing? Do you know how your mom's doing? Um, not intending for anything, just, just an honest question. And uh, this 16-year-old girl and her 14-year-old brother who hadn't seen their parents in 47 days and didn't know if they were still alive, didn't know how they were doing, didn't know if they would ever see them again. Uh, she just says, I, I, we don't know anything. And, and she starts to quietly start to cry. And then you see her 14-year-old brother, who you can tell has been hardened by some really, really difficult things that he's seen. And he starts to cry too. And uh, you just see uh, Ewan and Charlie um, just realize the, the gravity of the question. And then the, the scene uh, kind of fades to black, and then the next thing you see is uh, Ewan and Charlie, and they're driving to the border. And they get through the border, and Ewan's kind of um, speaking over uh, the footage. And, and he just simply, without trying to be political or anything, just says, uh, I realize that it was way easier for us to cross the border. Why? Why was it easier for Ewan and Charlie to cross the border? And yet for Maria and Abraham, not to be able to. Money, power, fame, the zip code that two of them had grown up in versus the other two. 
Are you and Charlie more valuable than Maria and Abraham? In the world's eyes, yes. But not in God's eyes. And sure as heck, shouldn't be in the church's eyes either. Love has no favorites. Verses 5 through 7, we get the very first supporting argument that James makes. James makes this argument that wisdom and experience are against showing favoritism, okay? Uh, James points out that it's actually the rich and the powerful who are uh, the cool, if you will, that are inflicting harm on the church. Dr. Nystrom says this, he says, for James, the contrast is stronger than simply between the rich and poor, and I'll explain why this matters in just a second. It has to do with those who truly trust in God and with those who tr whose trust in God is mixed with a trust in the standards of the world, standards that are hostile to God and his designs. If you think back just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Austin actually talked about this, that uh, there is a problem when we are double-minded, when we're praying and asking God for things. We can't uh, be double-minded where we're like, well, we'll trust God in this situation, but in other situations, we're still going to hang on to trusting the world and what the world thinks, okay? And so he's like, you've got to figure out which camp you're going to land in, right? There's no straddling between the two worlds. And this is what Nystrom actually points out. When James is talking about the poor, he's not simply talking about economic realities, although absolutely that is the context here. But there was also an understanding that to be poor, uh, in many ways, uh, made you rich in the eyes of God because it added or caused a sense of dependence and a greater faith in who God was. And so as a result, what James is saying is you can't show favoritism hoping that maybe the rich person will then be a, uh, a patron of the church. In other words, care for the church and give the church the money that it needs. And so you're going to try to be favorites with them. He's like, no, 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 no. We've got to be all in in our understanding of what God's design is, not what the world's design. The world says the rich, they actually get treated differently, okay, especially at that time. But the church says, no, no, we are all treated because we are all made in the image of God. And James actually then points out, it's actually the the poor who are rich in faith, like that's a thing that's not only valuable now, that's a thing that's actually valuable in the life to come as well. You want to know who's really rich? James is like, it's actually the ones that you are mistakenly looking at their gold ring and their fine clothes. And he says it's the rich that are actually trying to destroy the church. Okay, they're perverting justice in the courts. They're the ones dragging you into court, he says. This is still, at times, an issue in our world today. Um, Brian Stevenson wrote, uh, we need to talk about an injustice. It's a TED talk that he gave. He said, we have a system of justice in this country that treats you much better if you are rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. <sighs> Man, I freaking hate that. And I also realize that I am on the rich side of this equation, not the poor side. Church, we have a responsibility. Now, it's really important that we understand that James is not anti-rich. It feels like that. What James is anti is when we use our riches to try to earn favor from those around us. 
when we think we should be treated differently as a result, rather than using it, as Timothy said, as a way to be generous, to share with those in need. James gives us a last support, verses 8 through 13, where he basically says God's word is against showing favoritism. All right, so love has no favorites, and then he supports it in verses 5 and 7. Wisdom and experience are against showing favoritism. And then he basically supports it again by saying God's word is against favoritism. And this is like all over the place throughout Scripture. I'm going to just throw uh, uh, four verses at you. Deuteronomy 1.17. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Proverbs 24.23. Here are some further sayings of the wise. It is wrong to show favoritism when passing judgment. Romans 2.11. For God does not show favoritism. Matthew 5, 46 to 48, which we know that James has in mind when he's writing this. Not that he quoted it from Matthew's gospel, but that he quoted it from Jesus, who Matthew also quotes in his gospel. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, there's a scholar, uh, Dr. Martha Morkish. Um, she's a prof at Columbia uh, Seminary in uh, South Carolina, and she says this. She says, my Aunt Carol, who was a Montessori teacher for many years, used to say that those children who are the most unlovable are precisely the ones who most need love. She was observing the effects of emotional deprivation on children. Those who tend to act out in preschool often do so because they have not been freely and generously loved at home. If you are a teacher, you know exactly what she's talking about. And she goes on and says this. Dr. Morkish says, I wonder if James has some of this same wisdom transposed into the economic realm. Those who are the most economically deprived are the most in need of active, merciful love. It may be easy to love those who are beautiful. However, there are two potential problems with this. Number one, she says, are they really the ones who most need it? And number two, is this really love or is it self-promotion? And oh, when she asked that second question, I was like. <laughs> That's exactly what I was like. <laughs> Sometimes God's like, yo, I'm going to emphasize a point for you. Is it really love or is it just self-promotion? Do I feel better about myself when I am in the presence of the rich, the beautiful, the cool, the powerful? Is it really love or is it just what I might get from it? This entire section in James, these first 13 verses of chapter two, is James once again getting all up in our business. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys took the mirror challenge um, that I gave you last week. For every one minute you look at yourself in a mirror, spend one minute reading the book of James. Uh, I realize I spend <laughs> a lot more time looking in a mirror than I thought, uh, which meant that I had a lot of James to read. Uh, and so I actually had it on the Bible app uh, when I was driving around listening to it. And can I just tell you, 
I used to think James was one of my favorite books in the New Testament. I kind of hate James right now. Like, I'm like, you guys are laughing, but I'm like kind of serious. I don't like it. He's calling out too many things that I'm just like, ugh. But James wants to be all up in our business, not because he's trying to break us down, not because God is trying to break us down, but because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And there is a humbling that takes place as we walk through the book of James. We're feeling it right here in these 13 verses. And as that continues to happen, as we humble ourselves before the Lord, God promises that he will lift us up. And friends, I want us to be a church that is willing to look deeply and intimately at who we are at our core. I told you at the beginning, I thought I was pretty good at this. I thought that I had like kind of learned this lesson and I've realized this past week that I think there are times that I even deceive myself. And I too can at times play favorites. Sometimes I don't even know that I'm doing it until I kind of peel back some of those layers and I'm like, ooh, that's, that's not who I want to be. Um, I think that there's two ways that we're supposed to think about this this morning. Who do you tend to elevate above others in your treatment? And who do you tend to diminish in your treatment? Uh, Neither one of these should be happening. Do you expect to be treated better than others? And what do you do if you are not? It's a really good question to ask yourself. Do you ever treat people differently based upon their wardrobe, social polish, wealth, power, or profession? Nystrom uh, shared a story that he had been invited to a large gathering of a particular denomination, and it was all of the top pastors in the denomination, and it was kind of a conference, and they heard a message, and then afterwards they were gathered into uh, a nice room in the hotel, and uh, there was a number of waiters who were dressed up to serve them uh, drinks and such, and uh, David said that he uh, doesn't feel comfortable in those situations, and so um, he decided he would stand up and just kind of help because there was too many people uh, for all of the wait staff to be able to serve them, and so it was just drinks, so he uh, was just serving drinks, and well, one older gentleman walked up to him, and he went to hand him a drink and, and, and engage with him, and, and the guy just kind of looked at him, uh, he said, with kind of a an eye that if you've ever worked as a server in a restaurant, you just know that feeling. And he tried to like just, you know, smile and and say something else to him. And the guy didn't even acknowledge him, turned around and just walked back to his seat. Uh, He said, I was wearing a suit that looked similar to the suits that the wait staff was wearing. And he said, I'm sure he probably thought I was just one of the wait staff. And uh, so after everyone had gotten their drinks and snacks, um, they kind of sat down in a circle and there was uh, kind of an inner circle and then an outer circle. And uh, Nystrom uh, happened to wind up pulling up a chair on the second layer of the circle and uh, realized he was sitting right behind the man who had just treated him that way. And uh, when the head of the denomination began, he said, hey, um, before we get started, as we discuss uh, the, the, the message that we just heard, um, I'd like to ask um, our New Testament uh, scholar that we've invited in uh, just to share a couple of words. And he was referring to David. 
And so uh, David uh, stood up to share, and of course everyone turned around, including the man who had just treated him as though he was a low-life, nothing waitstaff. And he said, I could instantly see in the man's face the blood drain from <laughs> uh, around his cheeks. And uh, he said, uh, he later came up to me and uh, profusely uh, showered me with uh, kind words uh, without even mentioning how he had treated me earlier. Friends, we, we can never be a church like that. And I know it's super easy on the outside for us to say like, yeah, no, no, no. And I feel like in many ways we're not. But I still think there are times that our own hearts can deceive us and we can still play favorites. And so what I'm going to do as we close is uh, I'm going to put up just some pictures. It's from an artist that I really appreciate. Uh, It's a series of Jesus washing different people's feet. And I just want you to take a minute and uh, look at these and give God the opportunity to maybe reveal anything in your heart that comes up as you look at some of these as to how we might wish to treat everyone who walks into our doors. Uh, So just take a look at these pictures. Is there anyone's feet that you might have a hard time washing? Father God, let us be people who are um, genuinely welcoming. Father, that we don't play favorites that we see people the way that you see people. God, we all have sin, we all have brokenness, we all have places where we are uh, actively working against your kingdom. God, we all have things that we prefer and like. And yet, Father, you have called us to not show favoritism. That we don't look at the outside and judge the inside. God, I know there are times in my own heart and life that I, that I still show favoritism. This morning, God, I repent of that and I ask for your forgiveness. As a church, Father, ways that we have done that, we repent. 
Father, we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask for another chance to do it right. Let us love the way that you love. Help us to do it in your name for your glory, dear Jesus.